I honestly, this morning, I was thinking about what we're going to talk about and go through, and I got to thinking about, I have three, maybe four pastor friends that are beekeepers, that, which is like, makes me crazy. Like, do you not have enough anxiety in your life pastoring that you want to go like handle bees? But I like the idea of a suit that covers everything, and uh, I kind of wish I had one this morning because uh, there may be some stinging here, and I don't want it to be on me. I think you'll understand in a minute. This is part five of our series in the revolutionary life or part two of part three, depending on how you measure it. Because it's the fifth week we've talked about it, but Easter fell in the middle, so we kind of jumped to the end. It doesn't really matter, does it? Part, part two of part three, if that makes you feel better. Continue to talk about the new standard of righteousness in the, uh, the revolutionary life that Jesus calls us to. Because some people go, why are we using this language of revolution? Because what Jesus is calling us to and what it will take to remain faithful in the days to come is going to seem revolutionary compared to what we have lived. It's going to be so different. And if you look at the church as a whole, and please understand, I don't mean this to sound as critical as it's going to feel at first. Hear me out. I'm not saying the problem is them. I'm saying, well, we're all a part of the problem is that over the past 20 or 30 years in America, as we have strove to make our church so much more like the culture, the kingdom has not expanded that much. Now, there are some churches that are massive that were not big before, but there's a lot of smaller churches that are smaller than they were. We have rearranged chairs on the deck of the Titanic, put them all more to one side, and I'm not, that's not the larger church's fault. But there hasn't been a lot of excessive kingdom growth. And I think that part of that is that what we are calling people to isn't all that much different than the way they're living before. Why change? So in calling people to something less than what he calls us to, we're just kind of moving people around a little bit. Because what we are called to be and how we are called to live will be in stark contrast to how the world lives, not the same. And it will take great fortitude to hold that line. It is why Jesus told us, we talked about this before, Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated for my name's sake. There will come a time when you will undergo great persecution simply because of your affiliation with Jesus and your standing with what he says. I'm not saying that to entice fear. I'm only saying that to underscore that Jesus foresaw the world that we would live in and in light of what he knew was coming, he called us to live a life that just sticks out like a sore thumb. He has a bigger dream for you than rinse and repeat. Okay, he's got a bigger idea for you than just different day, same stuff. But it costs more, and we want that dream. Every revolutionary, good and bad, has a manifesto, has a a body of work that they refer people back to for Jesus. That was his Sermon on the Mount, or uh, in in another gospel, it was called the Sermon on the Plain. We're looking mostly at Matthew, and, and it's probably a sermon that he taught many, many, many times. And Easter was a jump in the timeline, but if you remember the week before, we dove into that, and we talked about the fact that the Pharisees had rules and regulations in the law, and some things they added to it, which we'll see today, that they added to it that would determine what it meant to be righteous. And some would say that Jesus did away with all of those things. He didn't do away with them, no. He actually fulfilled them. 
And in fulfilling them, the bar is higher for us than it was for those who were merely following the law. The law's got great relevance. Jesus did not diminish it. He was in the process of fulfilling it. Romans 10.4, we've looked at before, says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's, he's the ultimate. He is the end. He fulfills it. Being the end is not the same as abolishing something. When you are the end, it makes you the goal. So with that in mind, he starts in Matthew 5.20, and he tells us, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. The bar that I'm calling you to is higher than their bar, not lower. He's saying, you've lived under the law, there will be a new standard and a new way of how we measure righteousness. Now, three weeks or two weeks ago, I tried to get through four different areas, failed miserably, we got through two, uh, but we're back, and optimistically, we're going to try and get through three today, because I'm a slow learner, but we're going to try. We're going to talk about covenants, our response to one another, and how we love. And Jesus starts a lot of these sections with the phrase, you have heard it said. In other words, you have some establishment of a rule in your mind, and you think you know how this goes, but let me tell you how it's going to go. And how it's going to go is a higher standard, not a lower one. Really high-speed recap of the first one. We talked about anger. To deal with this innate problem of anger, there was a rule. Matthew 5, 21, he says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Then Jesus said, here is the new standard. Not just that you do not murder. It's not that, and that's still true. You can't kill anybody. But furthermore, you will be judged by your inability to control your inner anger. That inner dialogue, that seething in your heart that says, if I weren't a Christian, I would. Well, you might as well. Because you're saying it in your heart. Second thing we talked about was the area of lust. And again, he says, you have heard it said... Matthew 5, 27, you shall not commit adultery. Hard to get an argument against that one. Everybody, no matter how they behave, at least verbally says, yeah, adultery, not good. But he goes on to say, I say to you, in verse 28, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in her heart. He teaches that lust in our heart has a degenerative effect to our soul. It's one of the reasons that makes pornography so dangerous. It absolutely corrodes the human heart. Now that's as far as we got before Easter. So the third week, we're going to talk about a couple other areas. And uh, this is where I need to put on the beekeeper suit. Because this gets really thorny. And I'm going to ask a favor of you. I'm going to ask, if you're going to storm out, save it for the end. Okay? Because it might get better. I'm not saying it will. I'm just saying it might. No, there are some things that we have to hear that are hard and are very counter to our culture and to how we feel. And yet there is redemption in it. So please stick with me, okay? Do I appear nervous? A little bit? Okay, good. Then you're, 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 uh, I could be juggling something too that would be on fire. That would make it better. Okay, first of all, keeping commitments or covenants, aligning your words and your actions. And I'm going to move fairly quickly through this, not because I'm afraid of unpacking it, maybe a little bit, but because so many different situations that are going to be referenced here that uh, as soon as we get into the very deep specifics, or what about mine, what about mine, you just have to apply the principle and trust the Lord to sort it all out. Culturally, we understand contracts 
not covenants. A contract is an agreement between two people which can be dissolved if they both agree or if one wants to dissolve it and they go to court. There is a mechanism for breaking that off. Years ago, I had a book deal with a publisher, and it was a really bumpy arrangement. It was bumpier than I realized because at one point when I said in frustration, I think I'd like to be released from this contract, before I could change my mind, they said, we agree. And they emailed me a document, and I signed. It was over. It was done. Poof, gone, okay? And contracts are like that. You can, you can detach from a contract usually fairly easily, sometimes a little more difficult, but there's a mechanism for it. A contract is for individual benefit. I had a benefit. They had a benefit. When we didn't feel we were getting our benefit, we could break that off. If you've ever rented a house, financed a car, whatever, you've entered into a contract. Understand, though, that we have different arrangements among people that we love. We have covenants. Even if you are to uh, have your child in your home and there's a rent arrangement there because they're an adult or whatever, it's got a different twist to it than than a contract. It's just got a different feel. One writer said a covenant is a relationship between two partners who make binding promises to each other to reach a common goal. Remember, contracts are individual goals. A covenant, a common goal. They're often accompanied by oaths, signs, ceremonies. Covenants define obligations and commitments, but they're different from a contract because they are relational and personal. God makes relationship with humanity through covenant. Common goal. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, we see God making covenants with individual men and with the Hebrew people. Covenants are the language of God. So when men and women make covenants with one another, marriage covenants, it just doesn't reflect on them. It actually reflects on God. We say we are relating to one another in a way in which God relates to us. We are speaking God's language of love and we're attempting to reflect his dealings with us in our dealings with one another. We are saying in our area of covenantal love with one another, if you take a peek and look closely, you'll see God. With that as background knowledge, Jesus raises the bar on the covenant of marriage. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Beekeeper skills activate. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, remember, he always said, this is always said to you, but I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now understand, he's not prohibiting divorce here. He's not. Divorce had happened up until then, continued to happen. It happened in the Old Testament. God was reluctant to allow it, but eventually he did. Matthew 19 says, uh, Jesus said, it was because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it wasn't so. It wasn't God's plan. So already in history, divorce was a fact of life. Don't assume that everything that happened in the Bible necessarily had God's blessing on it. A lot of crazy whack things happened in the Bible that people now say, well, it was in the Bible. It was also, you know, never blessed by God. Jesus emphasizes, sorry, I turned that off. Jesus emphasized the value of the marriage contract, not because he's trying to beat people up for mistakes that they've made, 
but because he wants their words and their deeds to align as a reflection of the covenant that he has with us. Marriage is a covenant, and if we take it lightly, we take God lightly. A culture that has a low value of marriage quickly develops a low value of God. A person that honors God understands that the picture of marriage is bigger than them or their spouse. It is a reflection of our relationship with God. And because that matters, this matters. This is part of the reason we have fought for the idea of traditional marriage. Why do we care who gets married and that it's a man and a woman? We care because that is a picture of our covenant with God. And to allow or to acquiesce to a lower standard of the marriage covenant is to reflect poorly on our relationship with God. This is one of the things that preaches easy, but pastors kind of hard. Because as much damage as the idea of same-sex marriage has done to the idea of marriage, so has how heterosexual couples have treated marriage lightly. In fact, percentage-wise, that's done a lot more damage. Any, in any group of any size, there are also always people who have had a divorce in their past. If you're a person who's experienced divorce, please be patient as I first admonish those who have not and then circle back around to the struggle that, that you have because the Lord has things to say about that. We, if I've ever spoken wisdom into your life at any point, I would ask you to hear me out and not throw anything at me. And if you do, don't aim at my head. Especially if your main defense regarding divorce is, well, it just feels like, and you land somewhere other than what the scripture says. Because I have a ton of feelings that for the life of me, I can't line up with the word. So I have to hammer my feelings, or at least my behavior, into alignment with the word to live under the blessings that come with obedience. It's just that this instance is so deeply painful and hurtful. Let me say this. There are grounds, biblical grounds, for divorce. Jesus mentions adultery here as grounds for divorce. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, in an appeal to try and get a marriage to work, he's not advocating for divorce, but in an appeal to try and make things work, he does say, 1 Corinthians 7, 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, so be it. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God's called you to peace. He offers ground for, for divorce under the, the idea of abandonment, if they just leave me. And some of you have perhaps suffered a divorce or you grew up in a home where there was divorce under those and marriages have ended and it was painful, but there was a biblical aspect of it. But a lot of divorces aren't. And because of that, in a room of this size, for some of you, this is harder to look at because you look back at maybe a divorce that you were a part of and you have to go, I don't know if that was biblical. I've never had it explained to me like this before. I did something, I was involved in something, I didn't have full understanding. Where does that leave me? It leaves you in need of grace like everybody else you're sitting around. No better and no worse. Divorce is not God's plan. Malachi said he hates it. Absolutely hates it. But he doesn't hate people. And we all fall short of God's plan in different ways, and that grace is extended to all of us. Now, two major questions that always come up when people read this passage, and we're going to avoid them. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to read them. Some of you really thought, oh, he's going to ditch him. No, these are the questions. 
First big question, if I married a divorced person and that divorce did not fall under these guidelines, am I causing them to commit adultery? Or if I divorced out of these guidelines and I remarry, is that adultery? According to the words of Jesus, that is. He calls it that. I would love to pull out some obscure Greek meaning that could convince us otherwise. But that's what the text says. And it leaves us in need of repentance with everybody else. You're not being persecuted. You're human. You made an error. And here you are. It's okay to ask forgiveness. It's not okay to insist that what you did wasn't wrong in the first place. Now, that's not unique to divorce. It's just that we don't have the intellectual fortitude to apply it to divorce because it's so personal and we're so emotionally invested. The second big question is this then, okay, if that, then do I undo my second marriage to try and go back and patch up the first one? I've actually heard people tell people to do this. No, don't do that. I think it's attempting to correct a wrong by committing another wrong. Do not undo your second marriage. Take it before the Lord. Ask for forgiveness if it was improper, if it wasn't a biblical divorce. Ask for forgiveness and move on and honor the Lord with your life together. Your second marriage, even if problematic at the beginning, was also a second covenant. And you don't repair a first covenant by breaking a second one. The best thing you could do to redeem the situation is to make that second covenant last and say, take that devil. Jesus continued here in the same vein, not talking about marriage, but about his real point, which is keeping your word in covenantal fashion and how it honors God. Matthew 5, 33-37. Again, you have heard that it was said. He keeps doing this. Remember, you've heard this, but let me tell you how it is. You've heard that it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is footstool, or Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. It's true. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. He was saying in his manifesto here that there would be no gap for a believer between their words and their deeds that those things would be the same. We have minimized the power of words so much that we are comfortable with saying one thing and doing another. Let me tell you, words are powerful. When God went to create the universe, he led with words, spoke things into existence. Words have a creative and a destructive capability. And so when we say one thing and do another, we're actually fighting against ourselves. When we came to faith, the very first thing he asks of us is what? Confess with our mouth, our words. That's what he asks of us. He asks for words before deeds because in God's plan, words and deeds eventually always match up. That's where the power resides. And for there to be a gap between our words and our deeds or our pledges and our actions is to surrender all power to the enemy. Some of you are living with less power in your life than you could. You're reading the Bible, you're like, oh, the promises are there. You have less power in part because of a gap between your words and your deeds. And you are, you are emaciating 
your spiritual walk by that gap. He said, no, no, you say something, you do it. Your words and your deeds come together. The gap that we have allowed to grow between our words and our deeds, whether it's a commitment in marriage or a commitment anywhere else, and our deeds, that is the gap in which betrayal and disappointment and sin can grow. Why are people disappointed and hurt in, in Christians? It's a credibility gap. They've heard us say one thing and then watched us do another. Those who heard this manifesto from Jesus realized this new standard of righteousness was going to mean that the gap that might have been allowed in the old Judaism would not be allowed in this new way. This is how John phrases it 70 years later. He writes, 1 John 1, 5-7, This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. For if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light, he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. There is such freedom and cleanness of spirit of aligning your words and your actions. First of all, you don't have to keep two stories straight. Second of all, it's walking in light, and it just, your heart is lighter. You go, I don't, I don't have anything to hide anymore. Even though I had to reveal some of the darkest parts of my life, now the light has hit it. And now I walk in freedom. The new standard of marriage specifically and of oaths in general would be zero gap between the spoken declaration of what we say and how we actually do. Then he goes on to this idea of a new standard of righteousness and how we respond to others. Most of us do not need coaching on how to respond when people are kind to us. That comes naturally. When we're seated quickly at a restaurant and the waitress is kind and she's quick and she gets our order right and she's there when she should be and she's not there when she shouldn't be and allows you to have a conversation, at the end of that, you want, oh, I, I want to leave this person a tip because, you know, we, we know how to respond to that. We get that. We pride ourselves on fairness. It's only fair that we do that. Jesus sees the idea of us being consumed with fairness as us being a little religious. Because fairness was the basis of the law that the Jews were so committed to. The law was based on rules, and rules make sense in a land where you are trying to be fair to everybody. Here's where you, why you need rules if your goal is fairness. Religious people love the idea of fairness, and if you don't believe that, watch religious people when one of them suddenly experiences the favor of God. It's like every demon they didn't know was in there comes out. That's not fair! Oh, you wanted fair? Religious people love fair. When things aren't fair in a religious system, things break down and it's havoc when you apply things in an unfair way. Montana, for years, I mean decades, had no numerical speed limit, but they did have a speed limit. The law in Montana, I mean for decades, was a safe and prudent speed what is that? And the police could literally write you a ticket based on what they thought was safe and prudent for your vehicle. Now, in Kansas, it doesn't matter if you're driving a new Lexus or an old West Kansas hoopty with zip ties holding the hood down, it's 65. That's what you do. You know, you're 60, you go faster than that, you get a ticket. In Montana, if you were driving a, you know, well-prepared Mercedes, they'd probably let you go at 100. If you're driving my old van, 40 miles an hour, pull over, you know. It's, 
it was different. And they found it very hard to enforce. Because when you got the ticket, if you went to court, the question was, who are you to say what's reasonable and prudent? It should be a very clear, clear... People who like structure, they like rules. It's got to be clear. Fairness wasn't Jesus' goal, though. When we come to what we receive from God, the last thing that we want is what is fair. We want grace, which is why the kingdom leads and people in the kingdom lead towards one another with generosity and grace, not fairness. And the grace and fairness has to be evident in how we treat people. Not just the ones who treat us well, but even the ones who treat us badly. The old covenant had a high value for being fair to everyone. But Jesus reminds them with another one of these you have heard phrases. Matthew 5, 39, he says, And you have heard that it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Everybody went, yeah! He's referring to a passage in Exodus that actually says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, burn for a burn, wound for a wound, stripe for a stripe. And at some level, that actually makes sense to us. But because we are not perfect, it leaves us all blind and toothless. (laughs) How are you? Not good. (laughs) What happened? It caught up with me. You know... That's not really how we want to be treated, but we think it's fair to treat other people that way. Even down to the stripe level, he goes, no, no, there's got to be a higher standard for this. And he says in Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Chastisement of our peace is upon him. By his stripes we are healed. He took our stripes. And we want to go eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth with people who cross us? We have experienced the generous nature of God who dealt with our transgressions against him in a new way, not an eye for an eye, but a completely different response. And if God gave us that example, there's got to be a better, more godly way to treat other people. It is love and it is generous. He says in Matthew 5.39, another one of those poignant passages, he said, I say to you, Do not resist one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Okay, this is not an argument for pacifism. Okay, it's not. I've heard that used. So we should never get an altercation with anybody. It's not an argument for pacifism. I've heard that applied to everything from bullies in school to foreign policy. You know, it's just, that's not what that means. Stick with me. Because this is deeper than you might have realized. One of the most socially insulting things you could do in Bible times was to slap someone with the back of your hand. Bam! It was was the worst. Most people in the Hebrew tradition were right-handed because the left hand by the law was unclean. So, sorry lefties. Uh, But... But people would use their right hand. They'd rarely use their left hand for anything. So how do you slap somebody on the right cheek with your right hand? Bam. He's talking about backhanding. If somebody strikes you, if you've been backhanded, if you have been insulted at the lowest level of insult, 
This was so insulting that the civic penalty, if you got taken to court for backhanding somebody, was twice as much as for hitting him with an open hand. Hit him with this, it's one fine. Hit him with this, it's twice as much. Because it was more than violence to somebody, it was a signal that they were inferior. Sons might be struck. Slaves were backhanded. So how's the turn the cheek thing work? How's that work? If someone backhands you on the right cheek and you turn and give them the other cheek, like, they can't. It's a subtle defensive measure. They're not going to backhand you with their left hand because that's unclean. They could slap you with your right hand, but in doing so, they acknowledge you as an equal. You've, in other words, you've got to manage re- not retaliating while not surrendering your personhood, not taking the lower position they're trying to force on you, but yet not striking back. How do you respond to a person who attacks you? You maintain your dignity in conflict without acting like the person who is attacking you. Hardest thing in the world. Because when they go there, it's on. And if they did that, we feel justified in doing the same. He's like, no, 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 that's that eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth thing. You can maintain your dignity as an adult, as a child of God, turn the other cheek, but now they have to treat you as an adult. They've got to treat you as an equal. Here's a little more on responding differently. Verse 40 to 42. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anybody forces you to go to a mile, go with him two miles. Now, most of us have heard this phrase and the explanation that a Roman soldier had the right to tell anybody who was Jewish that they had to carry their pack for a mile. In those days, they didn't have Uber. They had Uber. (laughs) Uber, carry my stuff. Okay? And anybody could, and it was their legal right that they had to do that. But after a mile, you didn't have to. So if you carry their stuff for a mile, you are essentially a pack mule. You are an object. You're not even human that first mile. After that mile, you carry another mile, you're a whole different thing. Michael Beck's a photographer who's worked on a project of putting an image of Jesus into more modern-day settings. Take a look at this picture. This is Jesus carrying the pack of a Nazi soldier. Probably a very close correlation to how the Jews felt about the Roman soldiers of the day. He carries it that first mile, he's treated as an object. But that second mile, what do you think Jesus had the freedom to say to that man? Why why are you carrying my stuff? Because I love you. When we go beyond what is expected, we suddenly are no longer an object to people. We're a human being, and we have an opportunity to speak into their life that we don't have on the first mile. Some of you walk the first mile and are like, where is my thank you? You're not going to get a thank you. Best thing you can hope for is another soldier doesn't come along. But in the second mile, in serving people, you have equity. And you can say, okay, I'm going to carry this pack, but we're going to talk. 
And you're going to listen. And you're going to want to listen because I'm serving you. And to not listen means this pack goes away. Turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. Doesn't seem fair. Now, we don't want fair. We want the same deal we got from the Lord. Grace. The logic of God doesn't lead people to repentance. It's kindness that leads us to repentance. So he talks to them about this standard of how we respond to one another. And then he talks to them about righteousness in regard to love. Matthew 5, or Mark 5. Is it Matthew or Mark? It's Matthew 5, 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, now some people have told preachers, be clear, not clever. Okay, you ever hear that? Don't be clever, just be clear. We don't care if it's interesting, just make it. Jesus, however, manages to be both here, clever and clear. Because the actual scripture does not say, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was not the law. The law said love your neighbor. Jewish tradition had added on the hate your enemy part, which they were strangely more excited about. This is what the young man was saying in Luke 10, 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? Tell me who my neighbor is, because then I'll know who isn't. And Jesus is saying, no, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, although let's be honest, God never said that. You've just said that to yourself. He wasn't looking to see who he might be responsible for. He was looking to see who he was not responsible for. Let me cut to the chase here. Believers, in the new covenant, you are not free to hate anybody. You are not free to hate the political figure that is wrong about everything. Boy, I started right, right at the heart of it, didn't I? Like, I could have said, you are free not to hate your angry neighbor, and that was easy. But the political figure that's wrong about everything, you don't think of him as human. You think of him as an idea that you hate. He's a human being. You know us. We, we follow politics like we follow baseball. We yell at the screen. We throw popcorn. We just do. Okay? We just, it's just us. It's what we talk about. But the Lord really provoked me some years ago about how easy it is to objectify someone you disagree with just because they will never actually hear what you say. And the Lord convicted me, and I, I find myself fighting that battle within my heart, and one of the tools that I use is I will never reference someone in office just by their name. I use their office. I use their office first. Because that name can become like a curse word in your mind. No, it's president to you. Or it's speaker of the house. I'm serious. I'm serious. You recognize the office and suddenly you're like, oh, that's a human being. And we're, we don't get a pass on hating people we disagree with. This is for the fact that we're not able to hate the guy across the street who looks down on you. You're not free to hate the person who is so cruel to you. It's just not a part of our lexicon as believers. We're not allowed to do that. As a believer and as someone who is trying to walk out the revolution that we're called to, we don't get that option. To fall into that path would be to follow the prevailing winds of culture, not to walk against them. This is what the revolutionary had to say about love. 
Matthew 5, 44 and 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Why do we want to be a son of the Father in heaven? Because when people see us, we want them to think of him. My older boys, my biological kids, talk about, Dad, everywhere we go, somebody asks if we're one of your kids. I'm like, what are you doing? No. I mean, like, what, what, what? Like, no, it, we hear it everywhere. What? Because people see sons, they think of fathers. So what do people think when they see us? That's the picture they have of God. So he said, you're going to love people because you're representing me out there. I want to ask if the worship team would come back really quickly. Jesus' standard of love extended beyond those who would do good to us and those who would persecute us, not so we'd be doormats. That's not what he's saying. So that we would be good sons of the Father. We live in the knowledge that the law was fulfilled by Jesus, and we're so grateful for that. How do we express our gratitude? By ratcheting up our own standard of holiness to what he calls us to. The enemy will always provide you with an excuse to lash out. Always. You'll always have a good reason. Sometimes it'll even sound like your own voice in your head. You won't even have to think about it. It'll be first nature. He came to bring you a second nature. To make you a new creation who can engage with people differently. Stand with me for a moment. There is a propensity in our lives to justify our reactions to people because of what they did to us. Jesus said the revolutionary lifestyle is to surrender that right and to love those who even persecute you. You know, there's a little trick in starting a church. They always say, what do they want people to say about your church five years from now? And there's a bunch of things you could say, but the one thing I want people to say is that they loved people. They loved people. Father, we ask, as we just go back into a moment of worship, that our hearts would be tender, and even right now, that we would reflect back on situations over the past week where there was a gap between our words and our deeds, or our reaction to someone fell short of what you would have called us to do. Lord, the conviction of the Lord is a sweet thing because with conviction comes repentance and with repentance comes freedom. So just as we worship for a moment, Lord, would you speak to us? In Jesus.